1: I'm guessing that many of you, like me, grew up familiar with the phrase, the Roman's road of salvation. Uh, This is one of those things that us church people grew up being taught. It went something like this with some variation. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.8, but God has shown his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's it. The Romans Road. How many of you are familiar with the Romans Road? I figured there would be a few of us. My beef with the Romans Road is not that any of that is wrong. I just quoted right from the texts in Romans. My problem is that along the road, there's so much more to see. And if we only are familiar with those quick little bullet points along the journey, we miss out on the glories, the wonders of what this salvation is that is now available to all who will believe. So we, of course, have spent several weeks now in the book of Romans, and we have now come to Romans chapter 10, which I assumed was kind of like the end of the road, but we got a lot more chapters to go, of course, after this. So it's by far not the end of the road. Nevertheless, Romans 10:9 is a striking and important verse. My hope this morning is that we can see it As we've been journeying along the road of Romans in all of its fullness, or at least a little bit more, I don't pretend to think that we've extrapolated all that there is to see so far in our study of Romans. But hopefully this morning, based on where we've been in the journey, we can understand Romans 10.9 a little bit better today. The way I'd like for us to do this as we look at these verses together is I want to consider three questions that I believe that these texts give us some answers to. And then, of course, we're going to we're going to kind of get into these questions a little bit more. The three questions are who will be saved? How will they be saved? And when will they be saved? Who can be saved? How can they be saved? And when? When? Can they be saved? So the first question before us in Romans chapter 10 is, who will be saved? It's a question that will inevitably lead us today down various turns and detours. But in Paul's day, and as Paul writes this letter, the question was not as difficult to answer as you and I might think. The question in Paul's day, among the people who he was writing to, was pretty definitive. The answer was Israel. God will save his people. God would save the ones that he has chosen to be his own. I mean, what other answer could we expect? But of course, we've been journeying along the road of Romans for some time, and we know that Paul sees things a little differently now in light of the coming and revelation of Israel's Messiah, whom Israel has, by and large, rejected. The scandal in Paul's understanding of the question is that Israel for the most part, as a nation now stands outside of salvation. That's why Paul says here in verse one, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Israel in Paul's understanding is now on the outside looking in. And if that is the case, If Israel, if God's own people are in need of salvation, then again we ask the question, so who will be saved? Now the first thing that we need to understand as we deal with this question is what exactly we mean by the word saved. Verses 2 and 3 shed much light on the question given Paul's prayer for Israel's salvation in verse 1. The problem is that Israel, he says, though they have a zeal for God, remains ignorant of the righteousness of God and is therefore seeking to establish their own, and they do not submit to God's righteousness. This is why they are on the outside looking in. Salvation is still needed where someone does not submit to God's righteousness, but what is the righteousness of God to which one must submit in order to be saved? We've answered this question on numerous occasions already because we've come up, come to this word righteousness over and over and over again, but Let's look at our own text and jump down to verses 5 and 6. And here you'll see in these two verses, there's a contrast between the righteousness that is based on the law and the righteousness based on faith. And because of this contrast, many have assumed that Israel's problem was essentially a works salvation. Some attempt to earn salvation by their good deeds. Now, you are familiar enough with your Bible to know that such a thought is completely out of line with biblical theology. And we are quite right to emphasize that point to ourselves and to one another. But that's not quite What Paul is trying to point out here because it simply is not true as pretty much every scholar today agrees and admits that the mosaic law and the old covenant was was set up to be a system of rules that you had to keep in order to be saved. When we look at the problem this way, we end up, by the way, mired in the constant struggle that we Christians have today about how important, how important obedience is or isn't, how much of the Old Testament still applies to our life. We get into that kind of debate because we make Paul's point that, some sort of how much do I have to obey or how important is the law. That's not quite what Paul's getting at. Similarly, the issue is not that Christ merited this righteousness for us by being the person, the only person, who did in fact do the commandments perfectly while you and I keep coming up short. Again, certainly true, but still not quite the point that Paul is making here if we're following his Romans road. The reason is the law itself, we sometimes forget, made provision for the sins of the people, and it was not given to Israel with the expectation that they had better not break any of its laws or else. That's not how the law was given. So what then does Paul mean by this righteousness of God that he says Israel was ignorant of? And the answer is found in between verse 3 and verses 5 and 6. Verse 4 holds the key. This is one of the most powerful statements that Paul makes in all the book of Romans. And we just touched on it last week. So let's look at it. Paul says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Here is the key to seeing the answer to the question, who will be saved? Now, the problem in uh, is that this verse, verse 4, has been a difficult one for Bible interpreters to agree on its meaning, and the reason is the problem with the word end. The Greek word can be translated that way, no doubt, as so many English versions do. Virtually every English translation I looked at this morning translates it End. And I'm guessing that um, many of us English speakers would be helped if we translated it a different way, that the, the way that the Greek word also can be understood, and that is with the word goal. The difference between end and goal is that while every goal implies that you've reached something of an end, the opposite is emphatically not the case. As one commentator illustrates, if I stop writing because the telephone rings, that is not the same as when I stop writing because I have finished the book. You see the difference? So the problem that Israel had is not that they loved the Torah. It was not that they tried to live their lives in agreement or by the Torah, by the law. The problem for Israel was not even that they broke it One too many times. The problem Israel had was that they did not see that Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, was the goal of the law. It was what the law was pointing to all along. So verses 5 and 6 are written to help prove this point. Paul has just made a controversial statement when he says Christ is the end of the law, the goal of the law to everyone who believes. You and I like, okay, whatever. That is dropping a bomb in the middle of theology when Paul says that. So you can't just let him off the hook. He's going to have to prove his point. It's like, you know, a preacher says something, and you're like, hmm, I'm not sure about that. You better back it up. So Paul is going to back up his own point. That's what he's doing in verses 5 and 6. You'll notice that Paul in these verses is appealing to what? To the law. He's reading his Bible. And as we've seen throughout Romans, especially in chapters 9 through 11... The less familiar we are with our Old Testament, the more fuzzy the Roman's road will be. So let's see if we can understand what Paul's argument here. How is he backing up this this point that Christ is the goal, the intended goal of the law? Here's what he does. First, he appeals to to Leviticus 18.5. In any of your English versions, you've probably got little references that show you this is the text that he's appealing to. And, and here's what Leviticus 18.5 says. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now note, Paul does not say... <laughs> Nuh-uh, that's not true. Paul's not denying Leviticus 18.5. Of course not. He is affirming it, but in light of the coming of Messiah, he's not affirming it in the usual way. Yes, of course, Paul knows that God, when he gives a law, when he gives a statute, intends for people to do it, to obey it. And Paul knows that when God gives a rule, a statute, a law, God gives that for for good, for life. That's what the result of keeping God's law is supposed to be. But if you don't see how it is that Christ is the goal of the law, you will not experience the life that the law wanted to give. So what Paul does is he says, okay, Leviticus 18.5 is true, but but he brings up another verse. Guess where it comes from? It comes from the Torah. It also comes from the law. He appeals now in verses 6 through 8 to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 14. And here we find what Paul says is an explanation of the righteousness that is based on faith. Paul does not think that he has now found a contradiction in his Old Testament or that some other system is now in place that will result in righteousness. He is instead refuting a short-sighted interpretation of his Old Testament, the failure to take into consideration all that the Bible says when interpreting this or that verse. By the way, you and I do the same thing all the time. Okay, you don't but you've heard people do this Here's a modern example that i'm sure you're familiar with how many times have we heard people say Jesus said judge not Matthew 7 1 Somehow forgetting That jesus also says john seven twenty four, judge with right judgment you see This is a problem that plagues all of us. And when we don't read our Bibles, forward and backwards, we tend to do the same thing. Paul says, Deuteronomy 30 does not deny law keeping as important. Why would it contradict Leviticus 18? In fact, Deuteronomy 30 verse 11 says this. Listen to these words. This commandment, God says, is not too hard for you. But the word is very near you it is in your mouth and it is in your heart verse 14 Deuteronomy 30:14 says so that you can do it Paul has all but said the same thing in the Romans road Romans 2:13 that was a long time ago but remember it it was striking Paul said it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God but the doers of the law who will be justified And even though he went on to say in Romans 3.28 that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, he quickly added an emphatic no to the question whether by this faith we overthrow the law. Romans 3.31, he says, on the contrary, by this faith we, what, uphold the law. We see the law fulfilled. We see the law reach its intended goal. So, here's the question again. Who will be saved? If we answer with Jesus in Luke 10, 28, we will not be wrong. Jesus said this. Fulfill the law and you will live. But, here's the key. Christ himself is the goal. Christ himself is the fulfillment of the law. The only way. To fulfill the law is Christ. Now, what does that mean? How do we fulfill the law by means of Christ? And you can't get a clear answer than what Paul says in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth... That Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. (laughs) There you go. That's it. Who will be saved? The one who fulfills the law. How do you do that? By seeing where it is that the law points us to and then going there. Confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's it. And and you're thinking, really? Is it that simple? And the answer is yes and no. On the one hand, we should take Paul at in Romans 10:9 at his word. Christians, listen. Take Paul and Romans 10 9 at at its word. Paul says elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, he says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So this is as straightforward as you can possibly get. How should we know what a Christian is? Who is a Christian? Anyone who confesses with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believes in their heart that God has raised him from the dead will be saved. On the other hand, in an increasingly post-Christian culture like ours, there is more that needs to be understood about this confession and the belief that, according to Romans ten nine, identifies who is saved. Just as we've said a couple times in this service, the slogan "Jesus is Lord." in our culture in a post-christian culture has just lost its edge it's lost its edge many commentators will say that the expression jesus is lord was probably something of a baptismal formula when you got baptized you said those words you confessed those words and in many cultures still today you are you know this there are places in the world where to be baptized is understood to be proclaiming jesus is lord It can get you killed. It can absolutely get you killed. But we've lost that. We've lost that. So we've got to go back and understand how revolutionary this confession, this belief, truly is. So let's consider first the meaning and significance in these verses of the mouth and the heart. If you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. And why does Paul bring up the mouth and the heart? In verse 6, You'll see the two together, but you almost miss it. He says, do not say in your heart. Now, many English versions fail to point out that Paul has introduced his citation of Deuteronomy 30 with these words. Do not say in your heart that come from Deuteronomy 8:17 and Deuteronomy 9, 4. The context of both of those passages is significant. Both of them are a warning to Israel, a warning to ever assume that they are in covenant with God because of their own power or righteousness. Do not say in your heart, my own power has gotten me here. Do not say in your heart, it is because of our goodness that God has loved us. Do not say such a thing in your heart. Both are a warning to anyone to ever assume that they are righteous, that they're in covenant with God, that they belong to God because of their own power of right or righteousness. That's exactly the problem that Paul pointed out in Romans 10.3. So by introducing his use of Deuteronomy 30 with this warning, Paul is indicating he's now taking a fresh approach to Deuteronomy 30. This fresh take is obvious in our English translation here by the parenthetical elements that you see in verses 6 to 8. Did you notice that? Those are obviously Paul's interpretation of Deuteronomy 30. They're not actually in Deuteronomy 30. That would be amazing if they were, right? Paul looks back. He's reading his Bible forward and backward. He looks back now on Deuteronomy 30 with Christological lens. Now that Messiah has come, now that Jesus has come, he goes back and he sees what was there all along. But wasn't obvious until the revealing of Israel's Messiah. And here's the thing. I, I know most of us are not familiar with how Deuteronomy goes, so just here, here's a simple here's a simple thing you can see if you just even flip through the pages. Deuteronomy thirty comes after. The law's covenantal curses and blessings have been enumerated in the previous two chapters. Uh, By the way, Deuteronomy 28, very short section on covenant blessings. If you keep the law, this is what you can expect. This is what will come. Deuteronomy 29 focuses mostly on covenant curse. It's almost like the expectation is... (laughs) Israel is going to fall under the curse. And Deuteronomy 29 ends with the threat, the worst curse of all. Here's what will happen, Israel, if you do not keep, if you do not fulfill the law, if you don't keep to my word, here's what will happen. It's the worst thing that Israel could possibly imagine. And you know what it is. God will exile them. He will remove them out of their land. He will put them under the dominion, under the power of a foreign nation. But Deuteronomy 30 then comes as a hope, as a promise. Even though you fall under the covenant curse, Israel, the day will come. The day will come when God will restore the fortunes of his people. When God's people will return to him. And God will restore the nation. When this happens, it's predicted in the law. It's predicted. This is going to come. And when this happens, when Israel's dark night is over, when the exile has come to an end, then the commandment, the law will be easy for them. They will enjoy a new life, a life that the law promised all along but had previously been unable to deliver. And all of this will happen Deuteronomy 30 says, and Paul quotes it in Romans 10:8. It will happen when it will happen when God's word comes near, near you. He says, in your mouth and in your heart. That's how near, really close. In other words, just Paul is just bursting with excitement. Imagine he's he's reading his Bible in light of the coming of Messiah, and he says this, Israel, here's what you can expect: when your exile is over. I mean, finally over. When the promised end has come, there will be a renewing of the covenant. There will be an inauguration of a new covenant, complete with the law of God now written on your heart. The law will be easy to do. The law will be easy to fulfill. And I imagine Israel... All through the dark night of exile, must have wondered, what will it be like? <laughs> when the end has come, when God's promise is fulfilled, what will it be like? What will the world be like? You do the same thing, don't you? We do the same thing. What will it be like when Messiah returns, when he comes? Israel was wondering, what will it be like? And Paul is saying, wonder. No more. The time has come. Israel's exile is over. The promised kingdom of God has exploded into history. This new covenant has been inaugurated just as promised. And the law can now be fulfilled so easily. So easily. There is no need, he says in Romans 10.8, there's no need to ascend into heaven or descend into the abyss. There's no need to go on some impossible quest because the promise has been fulfilled and is now near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Paul is saying, given the inauguration of the new covenant, doing the law, and so enjoying the life that it promises – is as easy as confessing what is in your mouth and believing what is in your heart. He calls it in verse eight, the word of faith that we proclaim. That is how one is saved. That's it. But let's be clear again about what this salvation is. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 speaks of both Justification and salvation, two theological terms that I think we get really fuzzy about what the distinction is between these. But notice they're clearly meant to go together. Justification or righteousness, they come from the same Greek root, is the status. It's a status that a person has on the basis of faith. You believe in Christ. You are righteous. You have a status of covenant membership with Israel's God. Salvation is an event that is promised to those whose status is righteous. It is a salvation that awaits us in the future because the event it most points to most clearly is ultimate rescue from sin and death which means the only way that happens is bodily resurrection. So it's something that awaits us in the future. Salvation is not so much going to heaven when you die. It is mainly about your body being raised from the dead to live forever on earth. That is salvation. And it is promised. It is guaranteed to all who have the status of being in covenant with God, righteous. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. The Christian faith, let's just try to get this. Let's just try. Let's try to get this. The Christian faith is not just another theory about what a disembodied existence might be like once you die. Hmm. It's like what, I don't know how many country songs are written to like fly away into heaven and, you know what you're going to see, what you're going to do there. The Christian faith is not so much a theory about the disembodied life. It is not primarily information about an existence that none of us have ever experienced and could not really even imagine. What's it like to not be in a body? You've never lived that kind of a life. You don't know what that means. The confession Jesus is Lord and belief in bodily resurrection is all about, much more about, this life, this bodily life that you know all too well. The Christian message is not just a religious option that you could freely choose or disregard to give you hope about what awaits you after the grave. The claim is much more objective. Much more objective. Jesus is either the Lord of the world and its Savior, or He's not. And if He's not, there's really nothing left. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, the Savior, literally the Savior of the world, from death, from annihilation, from non existence, if Jesus is not the Savior of that, then the Christian faith has nothing. Nothing to offer. But if, just imagine, if he is raised, if he is the Savior of the world, if he is all about saving your life, your embodied life by promising a resurrection to immortality, if he is that, then the Christian claim is not irrelevant to your life now. If he is the Lord of the world, what now? What does that mean? And this takes us then to our final question. When can we be saved? When is there salvation? Now you've probably know, you've probably heard that the Bible speaks of salvation in the past, the present, and the future. (laughs) So there you go. That makes it easy. So, of course, the answer to the question is multidimensional. But the emphasis here in Romans 10 is on the present. It's on the right now. Right now. If Jesus is, in fact, the Savior of the world, alive, ascended into heaven at the right hand of God the Father, if Jesus has now claimed the earth and has, as his dominion, if this is true, then the time for salvation is right now. I, I, I mean, like, right now. <laughs> right, That's how near it is. In verse 13, Paul cites from the prophet Joel, who promised a day when everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Joel's saying, that day is coming. And Paul says, here it is. That day is right now. And so what? What does this mean? It means that this message, this Christian message, what are we going to do with it? What should we do? And the answer is, we've got to get it out. We've got to get the message out. Imagine a king who has just taken over dominion. He's overthrown the great enemy. And then he says, what do we do now? Let's get, some, let's get some people who can ride a horse. And let, let's, I'd like to be that. That'd be fun. Let, let's go out and let's, let's make the proclamation known. If Jesus is Lord, then everyone needs to know. Everyone needs to hear. You see, the Christian faith is inherently evangelical. That's what we mean by the word. The Christian faith is nothing if it is not missional. So in verse 14, Paul asks the question, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And as you read along the next following verses, that's a question that leads on to another question and then to another question and then finally to another question. But this series of questions in verses 14 to 15 are not given merely to show the logic of the situation. I mean, of course, no one calls on someone to help that they do not believe could help anyway. And the only way one could believe that someone could be of help would be if they had heard about the person in the first place. And how will such a person be heard about? Well, of course, someone has to say it, has to proclaim. Has, the word is preach, just simply means to proclaim, to announce So that's all quite logical and understandable, but it's all there mainly to lead us to the question and its answer in verse 15. The question is, how are they to preach? How are they to announce unless they are sent? Again, that's sort of a weird question. Why would we, it, it sounds like a question that you would never need to ask, like, Let me ask you this question. How does one go about telling his friend about something wonderful that happened? Strange question, because the telling assumes the mode of telling and really makes no difference. I mean, you go to their house, you call them on the phone, you send an email. Who cares about how? The question is also odd, because you might expect that if it's going to be asked, it would come about as, how are they to preach unless they go? But the word sent means to dispatch someone for the achievement of some objective. It is the Greek word from which we get our word apostle. Paul wants us to consider that if the time of salvation has come, if it's now, if it's now, then this is where we join the story. This is what gives meaning to our lives as Christians now. He wants to situate. He said, this is what God has been doing all along. And now here we are. We've shown up. We're at this time and space in history. And so now we have a role to play in the story. God is sending out preachers, proclaimers, in order to ensure that all his people are saved. That is, that all his people hear the good news, believe the good news, and respond with the simple confession Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now Paul cites here from Isaiah 52. Again, just look at your little reference notes. And Paul wants to say that this is precisely what we expect God to be doing at this point in the story. The prophets even predicted this. They predicted our time right now. At this point in the story, when Israel's exile is over and when Messiah has come and taken over and taken his throne and claimed dominion, when this happens, when, when God is doing this, what should we expect? Isaiah 52 is a chapter which celebrates the end of Israel's exile, the promised end of Israel's story, the time of fulfillment. And Paul cites here in verse 15 from Isaiah 52, 7, but he only cites the first part of the verse. That's the part that's important to the point that he's making. But Isaiah 52, 7, the rest of the verse reminds us again That the salvation that is in view here in Romans, in verses 9 and 10 and verse 13, is the good news of happiness. It is this salvation, the announcement, the declaration, the message, your God reigns. Who rules over the world? Is it this particular power or nation? Is it this president or this potentate? Is it this world's superpower exerting its force? The time in which we have come is a time in which the answer to who rules the world is to be proclaimed loud and clear and boldly, without fear. Our God reigns. The God of Israel reigns. This salvation is the enjoyment of the event described in Isaiah 52, 8, the return of the Lord to Zion. This is what our gospel preaching must consist of. This is the good news. So to be saved then is to believe the gospel message and to call on the name of the Lord. And by the way, this is, this is good news. It's news you're supposed to enjoy. I, uh, I subscribed to the Daily Oklahoman this week like the print edition. I don't know how long it's been since I've gotten a newspaper delivered. And uh, so yesterday was my first one. I was reading through it and my oldest son was at the house and I said, oh man, that's bad. I turned the page, oh, oh that's bad. And he said, it's all bad news, dad. Christian, we are filled with good news. Good news of happiness. What is it? Our God reigns. Our God reigns. This is news that brings freedom. The freedom to know that no matter what the newspaper says, our God is in control. See? Our God is not to be equated with what nation rages or how our nation responds. Our God is not on the side of this nation or that nation. He is the Lord of all the nations. Thank you. I was hoping there'd be a few amens at that point. I said, wait for the amen in the man. The enjoyment of this news, by the way, is going to depend. If you, if you say, this gospel, okay, I've heard it, I've heard it, I've heard it. If this isn't stir your affections, then it's because the news depends in every nation, in every generation, among every people, it depends on getting this message straight. But as it turns out, not everyone, and the prophets predicted it, not everyone who hears the message will believe it. Paul found this to be true in his own experience, but he also saw it was true in the prophetic record. Verse 16, he cites from Isaiah 53 1. Isaiah 53. He's got these texts in his mind. Even though many will be sent out to the nations, to the Gentiles, and even though many of them would believe the news, not all would. And why? Why wouldn't the nations believe? Why wouldn't anyone believe this good news of happiness? The answer that is implied is, by Paul's citing of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, is similar to the one implied in Romans 9.32. They stumbled on the cornerstone. You see, in between the two passages that Paul has cited, we read of the one whose appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. Isaiah 52.14. Isaiah 53, you know, goes on to speak of the one who is despised, rejected by men. And yet that's the news we proclaim. We proclaim a king who is a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the nations. You know why? What kind of a king is it who is slaughtered? You worship that king? It's no show of power. It's a show of weakness. No human being naturally believes that message. You don't either. Not without the Holy Spirit. It simply goes against the grain of all of our sinful ambitions. But this is how Israel will be saved. This is how all of us, any of us, will be saved. Verse 17 summarizes it. Faith Which is the indicator, the badge of righteousness, of membership in the covenant. How do you know somebody is one of God's people? Faith. They believe in Messiah. Faith, this faith, comes or depends on hearing. You see it? It depends on something being told you. You're not going to come up with this inside. It is a message you have to hear proclaimed over you. It depends on something being told to you. It's not something you'll ever figure out. And what this something is that you must be told, its essential content is the word of Christ. That is the word, the message about Christ, specifically despised and rejected, first by us and then shockingly by God for us in order that we might be shown mercy And be brought in through belief in this word that has come near. This is the message that saves. And we need not only to get it out, but brothers and sisters, we need to hear it over and over and over again. We need this message on our daily playlist and set to endlessly repeat Lest you and I turn away from the gospel, from the only hope of salvation that there is. May God grant it to us. Let's pray together.